Hey Siri, define pill garlic. Pill garlic is an old fashioned term that means a bald head or a bald headed man. Searching images of pill garlic. Dwayne Johnson, actor. Howie Mandel, TV personality. Mark Nelson, Greece campus pastor. Aaron Hickson, Henrietta campus pastor. Nate Miller, Webster campus pastor. Drew Karshner, lead pastor. Well, good morning again. Welcome to Northridge Church. My name is Nate, and I, I serve with our spiritual development and our equipped ministry. And uh, we're so glad that you're here. If you're joining us at one of our Rochester area locations or online, man, we hope today that you are encouraged and refreshed and challenged in your faith journey. Uh, this is week three of In Other Words, where we're looking at words and concepts that are maybe misunderstood in the Bible and maybe not used outside of church, but how they have significant truth for our lives today. And so week one, we looked at the word salvation, which means to rescue, that there was a problem and a problem solver. Last week, we looked at the word atonement, which means to cover. And we looked at the Old Testament sacrificial system of goats and lambs. And man, we had a goat up here on stage last week. It was crazy. And Jesus is our final and perfect sacrifice. Uh, Today, we're going to look at a word that's not even in the Bible, but the truth of it is taught throughout. And that word is omniscience. It's a compound word that means all knowledge. Omniscience is a word that's only used to describe God. It's a, it's a quality, an attribute, a characteristic that is true of God and makes him who he is. Now as we begin uh, our time together, I want to I start with a premise. That God knows everything we don't. God knows everything we don't. You may or, or may not agree with the first half of that premise, and we're going to come back to that and look at what the Bible says. But the second half of that, that we don't know everything, I think we all agree that we don't have it figured out, that we're always learning new information, always acquiring new knowledge. Uh, th- this is what drives science to discover new findings. This is what drives entrepreneurs to meet needs, create solutions, capture a market. This is what drives parents to understand teenagers or the terrible twos. We just don't have it figured out. Uh, This is what drives DIYers to unclog the drain. And if you're like me last week, YouTubing video after video, how do I snake this drain? How do I get it free? And so we use technology to help us in our quest for information. We use Google, we use YouTube. Uh, to get driving directions, to check the weather, to find that great recipe that we want to copycat. Man, we just use technology to help us. Do you know that 40,000 searches happen every second on the Google website? That's 3.5 billion searches every single day. And we've all done this, right? We've all gone to Google, to their homepage, and typed in a question. We need some information. So I was curious. Like, what's the, what's the number one Google search? 
and they just released from 2004 to 2017 the top 25 Google how-to searches. And I thought it was fascinating, so I'm going to highlight a few of those. Number 24, how to write a check. Right, that's important. Got to get your decimal in the right spot. Here's another one. Number 21, how to play poker. I'm not sure if that's connected to number 24 or not, but... (laughs) Number 18, I was surprised by this one. I thought this would be a lot higher on the list. Number 18, how to find love. So there must be 17 things more important in the world (laughs) than finding love. So what's number 17? What's the one right underneath it? You're not going to believe this. How to make slime. (laughs) How to make slime. Who would have thought that was number 17? Number 15, how to get rid of fruit flies. Right? Important. You don't even need fruit in your house, and you can have fruit flies. They're all over. Number 13, how to draw a rose. Life skill, art. Number eight, how to write a cover letter. Number four is how to lose weight. And now the number one answer from 2004 to 2017, the number one search, drum roll please. How to tie a tie. Isn't that crazy? Like, that's super anticlimactic. Like, how to tie a tie? Are you serious? That's the number one search? I'm not kidding. That's it. So I don't know if anybody Googled that this morning before coming to Northridge. If you had to get a tie on or don't have a tie on, doesn't matter. Either way, we're glad you're here. But I guess, you know, if you have to wear a tie for work or just for a wedding or an important event, it is, it is nice to get the double Windsor in the right spot and get it correct. So maybe that's why it's the number one search. We use technology because we don't have it figured out. We're always learning and acquiring new information. But what about God? What does the Bible say about God's omniscience, God knowing everything? And so as we start our time together, we're going to look at a few verses. What does the Bible teach about God knowing everything? And then we're going to look at some implications of what we learn about God from those verses. We're then going to address a couple of tensions that arise and then end our time with three practical takeaways from God's word. So what are some verses? What does the Bible say? We always want to start with this question. At Northridge, we believe the Bible is our authority, our guide, and so we use that as our filter for everything that we encounter. What does the Bible say about God's omniscience? Well, Psalm 147.5 says, Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. Isaiah 40, 28, do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10, I am God, there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. And this is what separates God from us, declaring the end from the beginning. And one more in Romans 11, 33 and 34. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? 
These is just a small sampling of verse after verse throughout the Bible that echo this truth that God knows it all. What's the implications of these verses? God knows everything. He knows everything in the past, He knows everything in the present, and He knows everything in the future. He knows everything that could happen or would happen. He knows everything all at the same time within logical possibility. He knows what did happen, what does happen, and what will happen, what could or would happen. He's never caught by surprise. He never learns new information. His eyes are everywhere. He's infinitely aware. God never learns retroactively. He knows everything in advance. He never has to figure something out, like a parent helping their kid with math homework. He's never missing information or details. God never makes the best decision with the the information he has at the moment, only later to learn new information that would have changed a previous decision. God knows everything. We could sum it up this way. God sees everything and misses nothing. God sees it all and misses nothing. So, in light of that truth, there may be a few tensions that we could address. Like, if God knows everything, why does he ask questions? I mean, throughout the Bible, question after question, God asks questions. And we often ask questions to to learn new information. Does God do the same thing? I mean, questions like in the Old Testament, God asks people, where were you when I created the world? Or, Who shall I send for us? Jesus asked his followers questions as well. Who do you say that I am? Man, throughout the Bible, God asks questions. Well, I think we can learn a lot by going back to the very first question in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 3, God has created the world. He put Adam and Eve, the very first humans, in a perfect garden paradise. And he would walk in fellowship with them. One day, Adam and Eve decided to to disobey God, to not follow his commands, and instantaneously there were consequences. Their fellowship with God was broken, and, and they knew it. Man, and they were ashamed, and they had guilt, and their fellowship was no longer there that, as it previously had been. And so God came to the garden, and he asked, Adam, where are you? Because Adam was nowhere to be seen. Adam was ashamed and hiding in the bushes. God says, where are you? Now, is God trying to learn new information? Is he trying to play hide and seek? Like, what, what's going on with this question? And when God asks a question, it's always to give an opportunity to respond. God asks questions for people to respond to him. It's an invitation. And I think we get this as parents and aunts and uncles and teachers and counselors and grandparents. Imagine if you're baking cookies with a three-year-old and you make fresh chocolate chip cookies and you put it on the kitchen counter and you say to that three-year-old, don't eat those yet. We're going to come back. They need to cool down. And you leave the kitchen. And then you come back and you notice that the cookie rack has been messed with and then you notice the trail of crumbs across the floor to the kitchen table where you see spilled milk and a three-year-old with chocolate all over their face. And what do we do in that moment? 
we ask a question, right? We know what's going on, but we ask a question. Who ate the cookies? And that little three-year-old's going to look at you with innocent eyes, and they're, and they're probably going to say, my brother. <laughs> but we ask a question because we're hoping that they respond and say, I ate the cookies. I'm guilty. I'm sorry. God asks questions throughout the Bible. He knows everything, but he loves when we turn to him, acknowledge him. It's an invitation to respond. Here's a second tension that arises. If God knows everything, then why do we pray? Why pray? It seems, it seems kind of pointless, right? If God knows what I'm thinking, knows what I need, knows everything, am I just telling him something he already knows? It seems redundant. Why would I pray? And what's interesting is when, when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, and in turn us, in Matthew 6, he addresses this. He talks about God's omniscience. And he uses God's omniscience not as an excuse to avoid praying, actually as a reason to pray. And Jesus says, when you pray, we are to go into a secret room inside. Don't make this a big showy, external thing to get praise from people. He says, go into your room. God who sees you in the room, who knows what you need before you ask, he will reward you openly. Man, when we pray, we are recognizing that God knows our needs. And prayer is an act of dependence. It's an act of dependence to say, God, I know that you know what I need. And I acknowledge that you can provide that need for me. And so I'm turning to you in prayer. It's not informing God of new information. It's expressing our dependence on him. I have two boys that are 9 and 11. Man, and they love playing Xbox. Last fall, we had an older Xbox. They were carrying it up the stairs one day. It kind of fell and broke and, man, out of commission. No longer usable. So they came to me and said, Dad, Xbox broke. We need a new Xbox. And I had this brilliant idea. I'm like, I'm going to win Dad of the Year award. I'm going to get them a new Xbox, and I'm going to surprise them. So it's coming up to Thanksgiving. And so I decided I'm going to go out on Black Friday and buy a new Xbox. Actually, I went out Thanksgiving night, 9 o'clock at night, 10 p.m. at night. I'm like, I'm going to go out. I'm probably the only person in Rochester <laughs> that has this idea. I'm going to go get a new Xbox. So I get in the car, and I go to Target. Man, and right when I pulled into the parking lot, I realized I'm not the only person with this idea. Everybody's here, and there are no open spots. And so I finally get a spot. I park. I go in. I'm like shuffling through people. I'm like, this is crazy. What am I doing? No Xbox there at Target. Round two, I'm going to Best Buy. Same thing. Crowded parking lot. I go into the store. Crowds of people. But I see it. On the ground, there's an Xbox on a great price. I buy it. Wait in line for the checkout. Into the car. Back home. I hide it in the closet. They didn't see it. They never saw me. Like I, I, I pulled it off. I'm like, I'm going to win Dad of the Year. This is going to work in my closet for one month, totally hidden. Now, a couple days later, my boys came back to me and said, hey, Dad, just want to remind you, kind of wanted that Xbox, it's still broken. Yeah, that's right, guys, thanks for the reminder. A couple days later, same thing. All the while knowing, man, when Christmas comes, it's going to be amazing. I had what they wanted, and I had it ready to give to them at the right time. Christmas morning, we open presents, we save the Xbox for the last gift, you know, the big gift at the end, rip all the presents out. 
it's the Xbox. Dad, you're awesome. I'm like, yeah, I did it. I'm never going Black Friday shopping again, but I did it one time. Right, man, the heart of a father that knows what their kids want, knows what they need, has the, the ability to provide for them, and then at the right timing, gives it to them. That's, that's why we pray. We're recognizing God as that father, and we can turn to him. Well, God's omniscience. How, how can that make a difference today for me? How, how does that apply in my life today? Well, I think there's at least three ways that it, it applies to us. The first is that it gives comfort to the hurting. God's omniscience gives comfort to the hurting. And I love this truth. God, God is not distant. God is not absent. God knows where you are. I mean, maybe you feel like you're rejected by people or nobody gets you, nobody understands. God is close. He is near to the brokenhearted. There's incredible promises in Psalm 139, 1-4. It says, You have searched me, Lord. You know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. Man, God's omniscience means that we are known, that we're not abandoned, that we're not just left to our own. No, he is close. He sees all our tears. And his, his omniscience is not just a, a cold, factual knowledge. No, it brings him close. Have you ever been traveling to an important event or a family wedding or a vacation and you're, you're flying through the airport but you, you miss your flight and, and you have all these bags and you're running through and you're kind of like huffing and puffing and you, you get to the ticket counter where you're supposed to get rebooked and you just drop your bags in front of the ticket counter and you're like, can you help me? I, I, I missed my flight but I need to get to this connecting city. Can you, can you help me? And you're kind of met maybe with this cold indifference like go to the kiosk. No, no, I mean, but you have a computer right there. Can you, like, help me? You can find me a flight. I'm stressed out. I woke up at 4 o'clock this morning. You don't understand my situation. Can you please help me? The kiosk. And that's not God's omniscience. It's not just cold indifference. He is close to us. Are you hurting or walking through a valley? God is near. Are you facing a major life decision, and there's so many complexities, and there's pros and cons, and you don't know what to do. God is near. Are you stuck in a routine job or not further along in your career as you had hoped? God sees. And are you caring for elderly parents, and it's exhausting? God is close. God's omniscience is an anchor to the soul, and because he knows all, he can be trusted. So his omniscience not only gives comfort to the hurting, but it also gives a word of caution to the proud. We never, we never suffer in true silence, but we also never sin in isolation. And God's omniscience is a word of caution, that he sees everything, that he misses nothing. Nothing is hidden. There are no secrets. Man, we can deceive people around us to think that we're somebody we're not, but we can't trick God. We can't bluff our way past God. We can't poker face our way past him. 
He sees it all. Jeremiah 16, 17. My eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me, nor is their sin concealed from my eyes. Wow. The fact of God's omniscience should give us pause to consider before we act. Man, that he sees it all. There's no darkness that he can't perceive through. There's no distance that we can put between ourselves and God and outrun and get away from him. He knows the secrets of our hearts. He knows our innermost motives, those things that we can keep from other people and they're hidden, but God knows. When we manipulate the situation to our benefit, he sees that. When we say one thing but really mean another, he understands. When we look for the approval of people more than the approval of God, he sees. When we secretly smile at somebody else's failure, he sees that. And the reality that we must face is that not only does God see that, we must give an account before him. Hebrews 4.13, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. That's for all of us. And this is not like Santa Claus who's, who's making a list and then checking it twice and, man, your name goes on the naughty list and you get a lump of coal. It's a lot more serious than that. He's the judge. He's the creator. He's the most high. We will stand before him and give an account. And he will judge justly. Last week, my family and I were hanging out at a water park and having a great time. And there's a lot of crowds of people there. By the pool, there was a guy close by. He had a bunch of tattoos on him. And one of the tattoos on his left shoulder said, only God can judge me. And I was like, that, that's really good theology. Like, that's true. Now, I think what he meant was, like, don't mess with me. Like, who are you to tell me that I'm wrong? Like, only God will judge me. Don't. I think that's what he meant. I didn't ask him. I was scared. But <laughs> I, I was like, I think that's what he means. But it's true. Only God can judge us. But, man, here's the thing. We don't want to stand before God on our own merit. We don't want to stand before God just with our works and our motivations and our attitudes because, man, we will be guilty every single time left to ourselves. And this is why, this is why we talk about Jesus so much at Northridge because if you have not trusted Jesus as your Savior yet and a Christ follower, this is why it's so important. Man, we need somebody to stand in our place. We need someone to take our sins and forgive us. And that's what Jesus has done. When he died on the cross and rose again, we believe in him and we're forgiven and, and then we're given his righteousness. Not that we're righteous in ourselves. Not that our good works merit anything. But when we stand before God after believing in Jesus, we say, man, it's Jesus' righteousness and that is why I'm accepted. So that's why we talk about that so much. Maybe you're here this morning and, and you are a Christ follower. You have trusted Jesus as your savior, but you might be living like God doesn't see like, I'm just going to live how I want. This is a word of caution that God sees. And we're going to stand before God, not in relation to being judged for our salvation. There's no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. That is settled. But we will give an account for how we stewarded our lives, our actions, our choices, our time, our skill, our resources. What have we done with those things? And we will give an account. And so if 
God's omniscience should, should humble us and, and motivate us towards holiness and a life that pleases God. And so his omniscience not only gives comfort to the hurting, caution to the proud, but finally, it's a word, a word of confidence to the Christ follower. Oh, this is a breath of fresh air. That God's omniscience is a word of confidence, that he knows our hearts, that he gives us peace, that he calms our doubts and provides assurance. And I just want to end with two examples of Jesus' followers who personally experienced God's omniscience and in turn received incredible confidence. The first is Peter. Peter was the leader of the disciples. He was he, type A personality, brash, resolute, determined, resolved, loyal. Man, you wanted Peter shoulder to shoulder with you in battle. This was the guy you wanted. Often spoke first and thought second. And as Jesus is coming to the end of his life and ministry, Jesus tells Peter, Peter, you will deny me three times. And Peter is shocked at this and says, I will never deny you. Though everybody else here, man, all these other followers that you chose, they might deny you, but man, I'm, I'm your guy. I will never deny you. And Jesus said, no, you will deny me three times. Jesus is led away to be crucified. Peter follows from a distance. And what happens? In that period, Peter denied Jesus three times. Even the last time, Peter was so irate that he, he cursed and said, I don't even know the guy. Incredible. From 24 hours earlier, less than 24 hours, Peter said, I will never deny you. Spiritual high resolve to now denying Christ, spiritual failure. How quickly we can go from the top to the bottom. And Peter realizes what he has done, and he, he just leaves ashamed, humiliated, heartbroken. He has denied his Savior. Jesus is crucified. He rises again, and then he reappears to his disciples. And he, Jesus goes to find Peter. And Jesus appears to him, walks up to him, and what does Jesus do? He asks a question. He to give an opportunity to respond. And he says to Peter, do you love me? And three times he asked this question, seemingly once for every time that Peter denied him. Do you love me? And Peter said, I love you. Second question, same question. Do you love me? I love you. Third question, Peter, do you love me? And Peter, in, in this almost repentant desperation, John 21, 17, he says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Wow. Man, Peter understood that he screwed up. He sinned. But then he came back to Christ and he was restored and he was saying, Lord, I messed up, yes, but you know now that I love you. You know everything. You know all things. You know my heart. And for the Christ follower who's doubting, this is incredible confidence, God's omniscience. Here's a second example from the life of John, another follower of Jesus, another leader. John wrote the Gospel of John, and then at the end of his life wrote three epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. The epistle of 1st John, the letter of 1st John is a five-chapter test to give us confidence of our salvation. And if you're sitting here today and you are you're doubting whether or not you truly believe that you are in right standing with God, 
Read 1 John. It's a five-chapter examination of that. And in chapter 3, verses 19 to 21, John writes these words. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts. And here's our phrase. And he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. If our hearts condemn us, our, our consciences, if our consciences tell us we're guilty, even after we've turned back to God, repented of our sin, come to him, if we still feel we're not worthy, if God hasn't truly forgiven us, if we're saying, if your heart says you are that sin, you're not forgiven. If our hearts condemn us, this is the truth. Our consciences are not our final judge. Ultimately, they do not accuse us or excuse us. The conscience is a tool given by God, but it is not the final authority. God is our judge. He knows everything. He is greater than our hearts. And for the Christ follower who may be doubting, this gives incredible peace that we can throw ourselves on God's omniscience. So this truth about God, this attribute that he knows everything is is throughout Scripture. Do you find yourself in, in one of these situations today? Imagine, how would you live your life if you knew you were serving someone who understood completely? What would your marriage look like if you knew that God is near and understands all the complications and all the complexities and he is near? How would your work ethic at your job change if you knew that God is watching? What would change in our lives if we really believed and lived that God is omniscient? And how would that give us just fortitude and certainty that, man, life might be tough or I'm not sure, but God has called me here and he knows the end from the beginning and I can trust him. Are you hurting and feeling forgotten? Be comforted. God knows. Are you living like God doesn't notice? Be cautioned. God does. He sees. Have you trusted Christ as your Savior, but your heart accuses you of what you've already turned from? Be confident. God is greater and knows everything. God's omniscience, it extends comfort to the hurting. It whispers caution to the proud, and it sings confidence to the Christ follower. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are a God who knows everything, that you're a God who sees, and we can trust you. Man, we don't have everything figured out. We have so much to learn, but we can confidently rest in the fact that you know everything, that you're near to the brokenhearted. God, would you increase our trust in you, humble us that we would see you for who you are, and give us the confidence that we can walk securely in you. In Jesus' name, amen.